Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Dowd, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Well, Robbie, thank you. Good afternoon, and thank you very much for the invitation to appear on your show. Um, I'm Professor of Finance and Economics at Durham University in the United Kingdom. And um, I was here, I'm here to talk about a paper uh, called uh, Disregard of the Empirical Optimism of the Will. And that means the abandonment of the principles of good government in the COVID-19 crisis. And this paper is joined with uh, Professor Dave Campbell from Lancaster Law School in the United Kingdom. Now, when we talk about the government, are you specifically talking about your focus on the UK government or are we talking about just governments abroad? Because everyone seemed to follow the same strategy during this pandemic. Yeah, I'm talking about the, the principles of good government which go back at least to Adam Smith in the late 17th century. So they certainly apply to all the Anglosphere countries. Um, and you're quite correct that the uh, these principles uh, were abandoned, basically, um, very, uh, very unwisely uh, with catastrophic consequences during the COVID lockdown. And the only country that emerges from this mess with any um, sense of honour is actually Sweden. And Sweden couldn't um, abandon it because its constitution prohibited, essentially prohibited lockdown type measures. They took mild measures and those mild measures worked, worked very well. Um, so if you wanted to talk about some of the good principles that we should have followed compared to what we actually did. Just so I can get, I need, I need some examples yeah, yeah. of good. Yeah, principles. yeah, yeah. So the, um, in a liberal democracy, the powers of government are limited. They're limited by the constitution in the United States, for instance, and they boil down to peace. That the, the government is allowed to do piecemeal things, um, but it has to operate within a rule of law that respects the rights of individuals who may not agree with the government, um, and uh, so what we have is. In this particular case, we have the imposition of essentially communist policies on liberal democracies. But communism essentially uh, involves this idea that by the imposition of pure political will, the government can do whatever it wants to do. Um, and the stupidity of this is that the, the government doesn't have the means to achieve what it wants to do. If you think about the Great Leap Forward in China, for instance, um, or any of these major communist um, policy initiatives, including um, you know the, uh, the events in in Russia in the in the nineteen thirties and so on, they were always catastrophic. They were always very very ambitious and catastrophically bad in their outcome. And I think we can now add COVID, the COVID lockdown, to that list of failed policy experiments. And with lockdowns, I mean, I think a lot of people, even me in the beginning, like I was against lockdowns, but a lot of people were for them just because they thought, oh, it's only going to be two weeks. Two weeks was going to be to reduce the spread, at least over here. And a lot of people were for that. I wasn't um, until they started tossing out $5,000 fines in my town if they caught you outside your house without a work visa. 
And I was like, does anybody understand like this is against our human rights to be able to go? I mean, you're essentially being jailed. And I guess the way that they pitched it was that you were actually helping people and it was going to be two weeks and then you'd be at back to your normal routines and everything. And everyone thought they could muster up for two weeks. And then that two weeks extended a little bit longer until eventually it was been a couple months and then people were really getting fed up. Yeah. I mean, the... The surprising thing about about COVID is how many people just lost their minds. They became impervious to rationality. Uh, they were frightened, witless by the government. Um, and I blame the British government most of all for this, because the British government took the lead and other countries uh, followed the British lead. I mean, we can talk about the lockdowns in um, Italy and so forth, but it was the British policies that were imitated by the rest of the world. And the, the propaganda underlying these policies was boomed out by the BBC, which had a, a global and very important reach. And so they established um, a situation in which, um, which was completely unparalleled, uh, created, it was the biggest economic, uh, biggest disaster in peacetime history. I think one can say without qualification. Um, and I saw it over here that um, the government went into uh, lockdown, well, went into COVID with a good plan. Uh, we'd been expecting a, a, a pandemic for many years. Um, and we always looked to the 1918 uh, flu pandemic, which killed min many millions of people. And we knew it was only a matter of time before there would be something else. And then we saw the outbreak of, of diseases, uh, you know, Asian flu and so forth, which had the capacity to become global pandemics, but were, were uh, you know, were, were dealt with before it became that bad. And then the surprising thing with COVID is that it's simply a mild disease. It's, it's about on a, on a level of lethality comparable to flu. It takes out the same sort of people as well. It, it's the old who are particularly vulnerable. And, um, and somehow this mild disease was converted almost overnight into something that required the whole of society to shut down. And this was done without any rational debate to speak of. Uh, and as I said, it was done uh, first and foremost uh, by the British, uh, leaving aside China, which was gonna suppress like crazy because it is a communist country. But among the Western countries, it was Britain that took the lead. And I saw Boris Johnson on that uh, famous uh, uh, press conference where, where he was challenged by, the, uh, by Ferguson and his team and said, have you seen these figures? Are you mad? And he almost overnight changed the UK policy. So a perfectly good policy was just jettisoned overnight on the basis of scare figures coming out of Imperial College. I could say a lot more about Imperial College, and if you don't mind, I would like to, because this is a key part of this. I'm curious to Imperial College's role in all of this. Why are they giving out scare numbers to government officials to be able to direct policy? Well, they basically, in the, in the May 16th report, which essentially was the, the key to the lockdown policy, they announced that if nothing was done, there would be 510,000 deaths in Great Britain, in the island of Great Britain, 
and 2.2 million deaths in the United States. So those numbers scared the heck out of everybody. Um, now, the point is uh, that the, the scenario that they modeled was a scenario that could not possibly, under any circumstances, ever occur. Because what their scenario was, in, in effect, was that we announce this disease, we magnify it you know, with a big propaganda campaign, and under this scenario, nobody does anything. We just go about our business the normal way. The government goes about its business the normal way. Nobody does a thing about this disease that's now hitting us. Now, I would say that that scenario could never occur. And, and yet they, it, the Ferguson team gave it a probability and a, well, they certainly, uh, this was their, if you like, uh, reasonable worst case scenario that we were facing. So you can imagine it, it caught the government off guard and, um, and then you had a panicked response and panic all over the world. Now, the, you, this might, such a scenario is, is patently ridiculous. Well, when, when, it's cold, when it's cold out, you know to wear a jacket. Like when there's a, a flu season or something like that, you know to put precautions of taking medicine or doing something. The public just naturally knows to do that. Like, I don't want to get sick. I'm going to take this or do whatever. But they did a whole panic method. Like everyone would just lose all their common sense, which only happens when there's a fear narrative or there's a panic type situation. I mean, there's a good example, red meat scare. I don't know if it happened in the UK, but they had told everybody that the red meat was going to be out of the stores and you're not going to get it for a long time. And everyone flocked to the stores and bought more red meat. So there literally was no red meat available for a good long period of time because everyone just stored the hell out of it. But that's our reaction with this COVID thing. It was like a Thanos snap. Everyone you knew or every other person was going to like die from this disease. And people immediately all the rationale went to government you take my fear because you'll know what to do with this you'll know how to make me feel safe and that was a bad decision it was an appalling decision um the um, i'm reminded of mencken on his famous quote that the business of practical politics is essentially to scare the hell out of everybody by a series of uh, hobgoblins most of them being imaginary and that's the sort of thing that was going on you have to also remember that in February, March, there was some very strange stuff coming out of China and Italy, um, whereby people were supposedly dropping dead on the streets. You saw these uh, videos. And that, that they, um, they were, in Italy, there were uh, scare photographs, which have all been discredited since, but which served the propaganda um, narrative exceptionally well. And they created this impression that COVID was a lot more scary than it really was. What the right response would have been was to keep their heads and say, we don't worry about it. It's another, it's, it is a pandemic. Uh, we can't ignore it, um, but we can take safe, uh, reasonable measures uh, to, uh, to mitigate its effect. The key word here is mitigate. You can't control it. Um, and, and the priority a public policy is to make sure that the vulnerable, are, that the people most vulnerable are, are the ones who are uh, the focus of, of our efforts to mitigate the virus. But what actually happened was the opposite of that in the sense that not only were we all locked in our houses and all of that, but in the UK, among all the stupid decisions that were made, 
which are just too numerous to go into. Um, the health secretary ordered that people uh, with COVID be released from hospital into care homes, which is a perfect way to spread the disease amongst the most vulnerable. I mean, it was astonishingly stupid thing to do, but it was one of these off-the-cuff decisions that was made and not challenged. Um, now, the other thing I'd like to emphasize about this, uh, about COVID, about Imperial College, is this wasn't the first time that Imperial College had pulled a stunt like this. In 2000, I've just got the figures here. I'm drawing from some work I did with Steve Hankey in the uh, National Review last year. In, two, in the year 2001, we had the foot and mouth uh, epidemic in the UK, in which um, it, there was a massive scare, overinflated scare numbers, leading to a panicky, in effect, lockdown response. That the summer, the countryside that summer was locked down. We couldn't go into it, and um, the um, the daily case. Incidences were forecasted to peak at 402, 420, and they'd already peaked at 50, um, and they were falling thereafter. So it was nothing like on the scale that uh, Ferguson's team were predicting. And up to 10 million animals were needlessly slaughtered, 10 million up to, and they could have been vaccinated. So in the next year, 2002, we had the mad cow disease, there were predicted deaths by COVID, by, by Ferguson again. 150,000 people will, could die in the UK. The actual number of deaths was 178. And then fast forward to 2005, we had the Asian flu, the avian flu uh, epidemic. We had predicted up to 200 million deaths. Now that's a, that's a pandemic for you. And the actual number of deaths was under 50. Well, and then we go to so they predicted two million, but the actual number was under fifty deaths. No, they predicted two hundred million, and the and... actual number of deaths was under five hundred. Who's the? Why do they keep going back to this guy for their statistics? It's a it's an off number. <laughs> <laughs> That's my point. Um, and then in two thousand and ten, we had swine flu, and we had predicted sixty five thousand deaths. And the number of deaths was, again, less than 500. So these guys, for the last 20 years, have been taking every outbreak of anything and giving out massive scare numbers, which were the basis of public policy. And there was never any accountability afterwards. It's not as if COVID is the first screw-up um, of the Imperial College modelling team, and nothing has been done about this except to throw more money at them. When did the relationship with the Imperial College begin where they were accepting policy? Like, how did we get to a point where they're the go-to, even though they've been largely wrong, unless they've been, unless it's an incentive type thing, like they're somehow getting in, getting some kickback on anything about what they do for the government in these policy settings? Because there's no, bad math is one thing. But the fact that these numbers have been so overinflated 
I'm curious to what their information is going off of if it's just like they have no will or respect for people's common sense to start kicking in. I mean, the overscaring is a big, ridiculous problem because not only are you losing trust in your institutions that are setting the policy for them, the accountability is a big factor. I mean, I, I remember seeing Boris Johnson trend a lot of people saying like this guy's terrible and stuff of stuff. I don't know the whole specifics, but if, there, if there's other people that should be accountable for things that went on, then they should also be getting you know, I reach out to a lot of people to talk from Imperial College, so I'm hoping I'm not, you know, somehow they all know all this. I would I would hate to be that type of person that would be, you know, I would ask questions about it because that is a big number scare. I mean, I talked to Norman Fenton, if you know who that name is. Um, he's he's really been outspoken about the documentary that the BBC made called Unvaccinated, where some of those statistics that Helen Fry did were largely skewed um, and they were wrong. He's done many conversations with people about it on his own platform and it had me looking into the bbc a little bit more where they tried to roast elon musk recently about his vaccine misinformation and elon just said what about your vaccine misinformation and the bbc said well we're not here to talk about the bbc and i go oh that's really convenient and it, it the distortion of the public on this type of stuff the only person that's been i guess blamed for this well, right now is just the faith in the institutions, the faith in the people that not necessarily aren't bad. They're just they're trying to you know help people out when it comes to just health faith. You know, I've been very critical about the government, but the fact that now that anything that comes out of any institution that might be serious is not going to be taken at face value anymore because of the fact that they really messed this one up. Yeah. Well, I can't answer your question. Um, I wish I could. Um it was more of a rant, not a question. <laughs> well, it, I mean, the, the first thing that should have happened in 2001 after that mess was to, uh, you know, have a word with the Imperial College people and find out what went wrong, have that publicly and shut them down. Um, and that didn't happen. And I don't know why it didn't happen. And it didn't happen since. And I don't know why. Um, I can say one thing, about, at least about the United States, this, some of the states, uh, were at least able to counter the national stuff coming out of Washington, and for example, Ron DeSantis in in Florida, and that's great. But we don't have the we don't have a federal system, so we don't have that level of protection. Um, all I can say is just to point these things out and say, well, at least can we have that conversation now, uh, rather than uh, wait for you know, some other disaster to come out, and we'd have a repeat of the same thing again. Um, so that's the best I can do for you on that one, uh, Robbie. Is there specifics that you get from the Imperial College, like who's running, who were the names that were in charge of some of those studies that kind of largely scared those statistics up? Well, the key name is um, Ferguson, um, whose name I've just forgotten. Um, it's it's uh, first name, Neil Ferguson, isn't it? Yeah, he's the key guy that appears in all of this, who's still a high, hugely influential epidemiological modeler. Um, so... Um, Has he, he's never made any statements about being wrong on any of these things? Well, he fights occasionally and he argues the toss, but he's, uh, he's never been brought to account and he needs to be. Um, but people like Dave and me can't do this on our own. We need other people to come in and say, look, you know, let's let's get to the bottom of this. And there's other thing as well that I mentioned before, which is the BBC, 
because the BBC is terribly, terribly biased. Uh, in a sense, it's a, it's a kind of woke propaganda machine that churns all this stuff out. And the metropolitan people in the BBC just do not understand the country beyond, you know, the beyond where they live. Um, and we've seen this over and over again. And the BBC parades itself as, you know, some great broadcaster. But the biases uh, uh, go back a very long time and they're very deep. And during the Brexit debate, for instance, I, we saw it over and over again. Whenever there was some good economic news, it would be associated with a despite Brexit, such and such, you know. None the, so it got to the point where we were counting up the number of despite Brexits for a laugh. And eventually it kind of eased off a bit. Um, but the... Um, I think a key a key part of reform in this country has to be to change the BBC's um, license fee arrangement, which currently it's it's financed out of a television tax. In effect, if you want to watch TV in this country, you have to pay the BBC. You have to pay the tele, the, the the license fee, which goes to the BBC. I don't, for the life of me, understand why the BBC needs a public subsidy. Um, which it then wastes on overpaid presenters and, and promoting a, a, an, ideolo an ideology that I strongly oppose myself. You, I mean, have you always had this perspective of the BBC before the pandemic and everything? Because the BBC reaches like here, like that's a name I know, mm, I'm very mm. familiar with. Um, I've talked to, I have friends who live in the UK and they've either pitched something to the BBC and BBC has rejected it, or they've had some interaction with the BBC, either good or bad. So I'm curious if the public is aware that a lot of the issues with the BBC as well, too. I know they got some criticism on the unvaccinated documentary because they kind of really pitched the story in one side. But I don't know. I mean, that would get a lawsuit. Fox did that or CNN over here did that. So I'm curious how well connected the BBC is with everything. Well, I've always known the BBC was problematic because my family background's Irish and their their coverage of the Irish you know the troubles and so forth was all was always terribly biased so we knew that um but most british people aren't really aware of it or it's just it's a mild irritant um but something needs to be done about that because it has a it's hugely influential i have to say too i've had some dealings with the bbc and by and large my dealings have been quite positive um i used to do some local uh radio uh interviews for RT, Russia Today, in Sheffield. I go down there and I got to know the BBC journalists there and they were very nice. I had no criticism of them at all. Um, so it, it's very much a you know, main BBC thing, not the local. For what difference that makes. I'm curious if they have a government funding, though. Like if you watch with Elon on Twitter, he put the NPR turned out they were government funded, but a certain percentage and he took their check away from them, but he put under them like, Hey, you are funded by the government. NPR tweeted at Elon and said uh, something like, we're only this percent funding because we have to make some type of money. So then Elon just sarcastically changed it to percent funded instead of just funded by the government. And they all left Twitter. They all made a giant statement about it. And Elon was just waving goodbye, but I don't think a lot of people know that. Like NPR for us was a big one that was really pushing down, like no vaccine side effects, masks are good for your health, lockdowns are okay, there's nothing wrong with lockdowns. 
But then our government switched the narrative or the CDC did and said, it's your governors that did the lockdowns, not the CDC. And I'm like, well, hold on. The CDC was the one that told our governors to do the lockdowns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just, they just completely, nope, I don't want any accountability in this and dust their hands with it and push it off onto our governors where we have Ron DeSantis and others that started taking it. This is my state. I'm going to do what I want with my state, which should have been the procedure in general because it was different everywhere. But we all kind of went by one giant thing. And I didn't know the UK was the first to really lead the charge in that on policy that was being set during the lockdowns. But what took a bigger hit, the social or do you think it was the economic side of everything? I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to make that comparison. I think the hit was massive on both fronts. Um I mean, the, the social side of it was utterly appalling, you know, with uh, the, the effect on public health and so forth, which was not considered, by the way, uh, in, in the Ferguson report. And the economic side of it, the, the economic costs were also truly horrendous. So I wouldn't want to say which of these two enormous figures to the extent that one could even measure them. But we don't need to. We know that these, that the, the, these side effects were absolutely appalling. And we're still seeing it in terms of, uh, so I believe, uh, excess deaths and stuff like that. So it's not over yet. But when it comes to the economic side of things, did they like did they give you guys relief or anything during like we had pandemic benefits? Yeah, we had. It was similar, um, so it, it, different names, but similar policies. But these were tremendously expensive. Um, I was just seeing a figure today about three, $3 trillion for the United States or something like that. It would have been comparable, but for the smaller size of the UK, for the UK. And this, of course, led to further problems because then uh, when Liz Trust became prime minister and she tried to push government spending, then the, the, the budget constraint suddenly appeared from nowhere and, and undermined her. Um, but for years, they were spending like drunken sailors, including Rishi Sunak, who was the prior, who was the chancellor at the time, and then he lectured trust on on fiscal profit, uh, you know, on good fiscal policy, which was a bit of a cheek. But that's another thing. So these figures were absolutely off the scale. Are you guys, because my little theory that's going on right now, I started piecing this together as more I look at like the long-term impacts that COVID really had, not just on people, which I'm very focused in, but now I'm starting to look at more of like the world stuff and the inflation aspect over here with every pricing of everything has gone up insanely. And then now there's now being a switch to what they're going to say is eventually going to be digital currency, which we heard of Bitcoin, but now they're talking about fully making digital currency. And I can't, I mean, I use a card. I can't think of the last time I had cash. But I have a really big issue with that because I don't trust them to control that. I, it's very difficult. It's very disconnected people are from digital currency or money being all on your card. I know we see it in our bank accounts, but at any point, those all those whatever numbers you have could be placed to a zero instead of having cash on you. Like some people like to have cash. And we saw this during the pandemic. A lot of things started to be no cash because it could spread the virus that way. Just use your card was over here. And I think this is a, a lasting impact. I don't know what your thoughts are on digital currency or your thoughts are on the pandemic on the economic side, but it's a great way to fix that inflation aspect that we're experiencing, which sucks because I think you know they shouldn't have printed all that money in the first place. I mean, I get people need relief, but they spend billions of dollars towards military and other things that we don't know what the receipts to are. Yeah, well, first off, on, on inflation, I mean, you had a big rise in government expenditures and a, a contraction of supply. 
So it, it would be natural to expect some, some inflation, which is certainly what we got. But what doesn't come into the discussion often is the role of the money supply. Um, I take a traditional monetarist view of this, that the um, inflation is caused by excessive growth in the broad money supply. And that's exactly what we saw. Although bear in mind now that in the United States, the broad money supply is falling quite sharply. And so we should see this infl inflation um, well, go well down uh, fairly soon. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's, it's confused the issue. And plus then you had the war in, in Ukraine and uh, energy costs and stuff like that, which confused the issue further. Um, but now coming back to central bank digital currencies, these scare the hell out of me and they should scare the hell out of everybody because these are uh, essentially weaponized, uh, a weaponized form of currency. So if the uh, federal government does not approve uh, of, of, of you because you're doesn't like your broadcast or whatever, they can simply switch you off. Okay, so that's not conspiracy because I've been thinking that and I've talked to a few people oh, it's on not it. Con it's not conspiracy at all. No. Whenever I bring it up, I just use the example of when I talk to someone about autonomous vehicles and he was telling me, he was like, oh yeah, you'll never have to drive again when we reach, reach stage five. I'm like, what? okay, what would stop you from driving though besides like the car? Like what happens if it doesn't want to move out of the parking spot? He's like, I mean, if the government, if you broke a law or something, I was like, hold on a second. Connecting to an unsecure Wi-Fi network that isn't yours is breaking a law. So there are some dumb laws. So that's a big fear for me where I'm like, that's how it starts is like eventually you miss a tax payment or something happens or you did something like jaywalked and the government won't let you use your car and then you can't get to your job. Same thing with cash. You say something, I say something, and I happen to say a lot, then they, I can't access my money anymore. Yeah. Well, that'll teach you, won't it? I mean, the uh, that's the problem. Um, if you want a, a real-world example, look at the Canadian truckers. As you can imagine what Justin Trudeau would have done with the CBDC. I mean, he did he did as close as he could. He, he bullied the banks into switching their accounts off, um, into seizing their funds and so on, which subsequently led to apologies. But he's still the Canadian prime minister, and he should be gone for that. Um, but with a CBDC, it's much, much easier uh, because you just switch them off and you say, I'm sorry, your account doesn't work anymore. Uh, go off and somewhere and die. Um, you can't survive in the monetary economy if you can't make transactions. This is very, very serious. And it could be done. It could be done. Um, you know, there's no question now that Western governments can't be trusted to abide by the basic rule of law because they've all broken it so badly that we have to assume the worst. Um, and also, and this is even, for some people, even more frightening. It could happen by bureaucratic error. Your name just gets on a list and there's nothing you can do. Um, and I was thinking recently about the, the Night of the Long Knives in Germany, where innocent people were killed because you know, there was another guy with the same name in the same apartment building and the SS went to the wrong one. And, and when he said, it's not me, he said, it doesn't matter. We're taking you anyway. They're either killing me or they're killing Robbie Robertson, the guitar player. <laughs> so I'm not worried. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, the, 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 the immense, you have to say that CBDCs have immense potential, but only for bad. And if they were to take over, we would essentially have a totalitarian state. 
and, and we would all become uh, uh, we'd all become serfs in a feudal system, which is what Davos and these people are trying to create anyway. That's one of the reasons they want the CBDC and they want to get rid of cash because these are bull, you know, because cash is a bulwark of liberty and CBDC is a, a key instrument of oppression. So it's not, this is not conspiracy at all. I'm not a big guy on like, and I start to get there on some level about the Orwellian control aspect of things. Mm. But I think we were starting to be conditioned at a certain point to really accept digital currency. Like before it was being really banned in the beginning when Bitcoin came out, everyone, like government was really trying to crack down on it. But then it, the narrative switched, like the government became now they're interested into it and they like it. And I go, well, they found a way to work it. They found a way to control it and their aspect of things, which is dangerous. But also the amount of how we stopped using cash so quickly. Now it's a little bit easier for people to just accept the digital currency thing, um, which I guess that's conditioning. But I, I, it leads into so many more dangers when people understand it's kind of like how now we've accepted the government can listen to us on our cell phones, but a lot of people really don't care anymore. And I go, well, this one's a little bit different because it controls your livelihood. I mean, I don't see a way back to stopping that as much as we stopped vaccine mandates or as much as we stopped a digital ID. And I still think that's going to come up probably later on down the road. It's going to pop back up in Australia. They're still talking about it. So I don't I, I think some things can be halted. I think some things can be stopped like vaccine mandates, because I guess just enough people didn't go with the shot thing and started realizing that their constitutional rights were being taken away. But we all across the board, every government is experiencing or a part of unethical procedures that are going on, whether it's their idea or their image that they want and their role that they want to play. But it's against I guess our rights is, I mean, I would say rights as Americans, freedom over here, but in other countries, just your rights as an individual. Well, yes, yes. I mean, we have to just fight back. Um, but the, the, the cards are stacked against us. Um, but occasionally, you know, you get bits of good news. I mean, uh, Switzerland recently had a, a referendum on cash and they voted to keep it and in effect to secure it, which I thought was a very good outcome. Um, but you have to bear in mind that cash has been subject to a, a sustained and quite intense uh, propaganda uh, campaign, especially by the um, digital providers, the digital payments providers. They want to get rid of cash because it's a competitor that, got, uh, that you know, they will, if we could get rid of cash, they could charge more. Um, and But there's nobody on the other side of that debate except a few individuals policy institutes and people like that. Um, and I think it's the same to some extent with CBDC, although, um, you know, it has come out of almost nowhere, as you say, in the last few years. Um, but, you know, the Cato Institute's doing good work on uh, fighting CBDCs, other institutes are as well. Um, but it's a depressing prospect because it seems to me that as a professional economist, I'm spending all my time fighting a system which is much much bigger than I am, and um, yeah, it, you know. And then when one threat never entirely goes away, another one appears, and that's another thing to try and shoot down. So it's a very depressing prospect. Does that change the economic, I guess, field 
when it comes into going to digital currency, I feel like you'd have to have a whole new system and a whole new study now if you try and study the economy because the economy would 100% change. I mean, you could someone could just inflate their bank account to as much money as they wanted to with just a couple clicks and buttons, but you can't do that with actual physical cash. You have to have you have to, uh, printer. Well, I mean, you can't do it with digital either. I mean, um, the central bank can do things like um, it can uh, threaten to uh, cancel your money to make you spend. It can do things like that. Um, so it can tweak the, the money supply at the edges, more or less. Um, but there's no way, well, one would certainly hope not, that they're going to go into big time money printing with digital currency. Although you can never rule anything out. Now, can, can a bank kind of th not threaten you, but can they suggest that you spend money because you might not have spent money in a while? Like start off by doing s things like that instead of just being like, we're going to take this away as a payment or this away as an extra fee. I mean, eventually banks will probably just do a, doing little hidden fees here and there. Oh, you subscribe to our bank Facebook. Why don't I take a little couple bucks here and there? Yeah, yeah. They can, they can play all sorts of games like that. Um, but I'm thinking of it more from the perspective of Keynesian economics, where they basically the central bankers think it'd be a good idea for people to spend more, and to get them to spend more, we should we should give people an inducement, um, or we can tweak the interest rate or cancel your or cancel your money, but you better get rid of it, otherwise you lose it. Um, there's all sorts of games like that they could do. I wonder what that would change for us over here when. Because burning money or defacing money is a is against the law. So if it doesn't mean anything, what does that mean? Well, what does it say? The Constitution says that only gold and silver are recognized money. And we've gone a long, long way from that. You know, there was no Federal Reserve in the Constitution, none of this. Oh, just gold and silver. Um, now, your perspective after learning all this and doing a lot more research, I mean, did it spike up with the COVID stuff that was going on? Did you learn a lot more than maybe you knew before? Because it sounds like you were already informed on the BBC and Ferguson as well. Um, well I was a bit slow uh, on COVID myself, but my co-author, Dave Campbell, was very much on the ball. Um, but by about the, on, on COVID, it was by the sort of, Let's say the autumn, it was the fall of 2002, our paper had more or less reached its current form. And, and we haven't really changed our views since. I mean, um, I got vaccinated uh, because I wanted to see my family, um, but I decided not to get any boosters or anything like that. Um, and I now regret getting vaccinated, um, but I hadn't fully appreciated how significant this was at the time. Um, I don't know whether Dave got vaccinated or not. Um, yeah, but you were put in a position if you wanted to see your family. I understand that. I mean, I know some people that did it so they could see their family. I just wish we didn't have to be put in a position where that, I mean, if you say it out loud, it sounds nuts. Like Occam's razor, like, wait, put in a position? What are we talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's because I've got family in America and uh, in the United States and Canada. And so I wanted to see them. Um, but, I mean, I did, it didn't go further than that. In terms of other things that were going on, yeah, I mean, I've been following, I'm a monetary economist by trade, so I've been following some of these monetary controversies for a long, long time. Um, but on that front, I should say that the, uh, 
the issue that had preoccupied me to the point where I just gave up on it because I had nothing further to say was assessing the strength of the banking system. And I'd, I'd long argued that the, the banking system was not fixed after the global financial crisis. Um, and that if you um, did a sensible analysis of the banks, you'd arrive at the same conclusion um, because the, uh, the bank regulators were using the wrong metrics to uh, assess the banks. And I mean, you can only point this out a finite number of times and get ignored. And then you just think, well, I should go and do something else. Um, now, at the current, uh, current situation in the United States, um, the, uh, there's two trillion, if I recall, in capital. And the bank losses, well, some people are saying it's two trillion. I mean, we're going through this process of regional banks being swallowed up. But it's possible that the uh, the overall losses could be could be of that magnitude. We know that there are at least let's say seven hundred billion, and I'm not keeping the, my eye completely, my ear completely to the ground here. But these are figures that I've, that I've been following. Um, so it, it and it's probably the case that much of the banking system in the United States is insolvent. So that should should worry people, but on paper it doesn't look to be insolvent because people are looking at the wrong metric. And to add to this, the um, the the British banking system is not as strong as the American banking system, and the European banking system is even weaker than the British one. So I think we've got trouble coming on the banks, and um, we haven't, you know, we we. You know the, the the bank failures that we're seeing in the United States are by no means over. Could you possibly ballpark me like a time? Like, what do you think? The next couple of years, next year, next five years, ten years? Okay, so I'd say about two years. Damn. Um, the GFC, the crises tend to sort of <laughs> have their be peak. Like Twenty years. I was like, that sounds great. And then you're like, two years. I'm like, crap. I got to start punching holes in walls and hiding money. Yeah. Well, I mean. We're going to go through a crisis. The crisis will probably be responded to by more soft money, more money printing, um, interest rates come down because the current level of interest rates is bankrupting the banks. Um, but I think the Fed overreacted last week. It put the interest rates too high. Um, and then, of course, you've got to remember that the great thing about a crisis is that it's an opportunity to do things if you're a kind of control-minded. So we could use the crisis to promote CBDCs, get rid of cash, um, God knows what else. Uh, and, you know, there's all sorts of digital ID stuff that's threatening. Um, and the um, I don't think you should underestimate the influence of the Davos uh, people, the, the, the World Economic Forum, have been pushing consistently and you know, if I was one of those people, I'd probably want a crisis um, because it shakes the pot nicely and it gives you the atmosphere of panic and so forth to implement the kind of reforms that they want, but we don't. I mean, we just saw it with um, the abortion stuff that was going on recently. They were tracking payments on who was purchasing like certain things, certain female products. 
about pregnancy tests and things of that sort. They were monitoring that. And even I was like, that's insane. What are you talking about? You're treating this like domestic terrorism, but it's because it's outlawed in certain places. People had to go to other states to do so. Where I was like, that shows you what they can do with just your transaction stuff. They're monitoring your purchases. They're seeing what you're going after. Are you getting flu medicine? Okay, well, we need to monitor you to make sure you're not going out in public. And now we have to restrict you to your home. Like, it sounds crazy in large leaps, but I'm like, that's how it gets there. It starts off with one or two people and people won't care if it doesn't affect them, but eventually it does affect you. And that's why you should care early. You should care early. And it, it's worse than it looks because number one, there's always a thin end of the wedge. Some, some thing is introduced and it said, oh, don't worry about this. It's only for extreme circumstances. And now a lot of American citizens are being targeted as, as domestic terrorists and so forth. So it's gone a long way from past the thin end of the wedge. Um, and the other thing is that they're always, when you introduce a new technology, you can always find new things to do with it. Again, this is similar to the thin end of the wedge argument, um, in which we become, um, uh, what's the word? We gradually get made, made to accept some something like digital cash. Oh, normalization. Normalization, exactly is what it is. Yeah. So the, the, this, and it's always in the wrong direction, you see. Um, and, you know, if you I'll give you a good example of this, is financial privacy. There's no financial privacy now in the United States, and there's none in the UK either. But in the 19th century, financial privacy was an absolute God-given right. Um, in the UK, we had it, you know, a bank, a bank would, uh, would accept a court order to investigate a, a suspected criminal, but it would have to be something like that. And in the UK, there were many uh, European uh, leaders who came to the UK to flee from oppression in Europe, who, who once they got to Britain, they were safe. And their governments had no reach in the UK. They couldn't ask the British, a British bank, you know, give me financial details on this. So there was no means they could do so. Uh, and they'd have been told where to go if they did. Now, that is financial privacy. And we've long since lost that. And the other thing, can I, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say another ramification is the fact that how many people are constantly – I mean one of the most dangerous times to send out private information is when people are doing their tax returns, when people are sending their social security number, a lot of their private details about themselves. Now, if the government holds all that information, how much more susceptible is the government to hacking? And other types of information stealing that goes on where someone from another country gets all your bank info. So now it's not even your government's fault. And then I just gave myself a great example of a way the government says it's not our problem. If they take your money out because you did something they didn't like or I said something that they didn't like, okay, well, sorry, a foreign hacker just hack happened to hack your bank account and now it's gone. So now I can't blame the government because it wasn't them, but it happened to be some person that they're probably friends with at a dinner at some type of steakhouse <laughs> spending my money. You can't rule it out, can you? No. At this point, I I, I just don't know because you start seeing so many things that sound so dark and so corrupt. And from a capitalist business aspect, it kind of makes sense for them, like in their position. But what are your thoughts on the, uh, I guess, the destruction of the middle class? Over here, I don't think we got, we have one anymore. There's a large gap now. The middle class seems to have vanished. Well, we're feeling similar pressures here. Um, 
And I think partly with the with what's going on in the United States, I think you have to go back to the 70s to see uh, workers' real wages being hit. And so we have a, a, a wave of globalization and stuff like that. From the financial crisis, we had the zero interest rate policies of the Fed. And the bottom line with, with these post-BFC policies is essentially um, but the closer you are to the money printers, the better off you are. So the Wall Street guys are very close up there, and you know they're getting, you know, they're getting greatly enriched by by these policies. And of course, all this intensified under COVID. And if you're some guy in Middle America struggling to keep his job, well, that's just tough luck. Um, I think it's an absolutely desperate situation. Um, in the UK, we see it in some of the small northern towns, especially, um, that are kind of off the beaten track, like my own hometown, um, which has also got big problems with immigration now, um, you know, because they're cheap to live and so on, and they dump immigrants there without the surrounding policies being implemented to make this work. Um, so I'm not against immigration, I'm just saying that it's, it's very badly handled. And uh, anyway, this is a problem throughout Europe, I think, as well as the United States. How di difficult was it for you um, and your co-author, uh, Dave, to get your stuff published, um, at least the, the paper? I feel like any type of COVID talk that's not with the official narrative, and I know some of the stuff is changing now, and I see a lot more people asking questions. But I, back in, a year ago, when I was first talked to Peter McCullough, he had been on my show twice. But when I first talked to him and I was really trying to talk about the COVID subject, anything I would type of ResearchGate, PubMed, any of these types of things, none of them had very available articles for anything that wasn't really with the official line. And I had met people that had talked about real evidence and real data that I was sent. But I was like, why am I not seeing this publicized everywhere? And even if you talked about the subject, you got lumped in as like a conspiracy researcher or a conspiracy scientist. So I'm curious to your guys' um, experience. Well, that was exactly our experience. I mean, the, the paper was commissioned um, by a journal called the Northern Ireland Legal Quarterly. Um, when they saw the paper, they rejected it. And then a big fight, we had an entertaining fight with the with the referees and the editor. And um, essentially they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they wouldn't touch it with a barge pole because it didn't fit their preferred narrative. Um, and so we'll now eventually get the paper published in a, a conference special issue, uh, hopefully at the end of this year. But it's been a it's been a long, long fight. I have to say too, this also reflects very badly on the way that the UK um, academic legal community has been completely captured. Essentially, you know, it's gone woke mad. And anybody who doesn't go along with that narrative is just frozen out. Um, so Dave had some very unpleasant experiences and re resigned from his editorial positions at these journals and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm speaking as an economist. Uh, so, um, economics it's slightly different because it's more technical oriented uh, rather than well we're talking about policy papers really um but i would toss the bbc if you're talking trash on the bbc i just picture a black band rolling up to your house i'm sorry it's 
maybe that's my own thinking, but I, they, they, I don't know to me, they seem so connected with stuff, but you're voicing out an opinion um, or you're voicing out your research. You're just showing the facts. I mean, what can people look at and be able to complain about? I mean, you're showing that they lied about their numbers and you have proof because you've seen many cases where their numbers were jump scared way up and compared to the actual deaths, but also you're showing more relevant stuff. That's not a giant fear thing. It's more accurate data. So anybody, especially that would have any criticism, would you just show them that and be like, what can you criticize? The work is just what the numbers say. Numbers don't lie. Yeah, well, the paper with Dave Campbell, it seems to me, is self-evidently correct. It just, I just can't see how anybody can challenge it. We don't do the forecast. Um, we, we don't look at the forecast versus subsequent outcomes in this paper, but I did this in my paper with Steve Hankey, and it was not difficult to do. You just go through the official reports, you pull out the number, and then you get you go for the credible death uh, result, which you can find. And we we documented all of this, um, and that's it. You can't argue with it, as far as I can tell. But these guys just won't engage, or they've come up with some convoluted something or other. Are you surprised that Are you surprised at that dismissal? No. No, but I think it reflects the degeneracy, increasing degeneracy of the time. When I was younger, we had, of course, you have problems sometimes, but it was not this bad. It's definitely deteriorated. And I don't think that's just because I'm getting older. What are you, like 20? Something like that, yeah. (laughs) I, I was surprised when I started talking to so many academics and they started talking about how hard it was to get their research funded and then institutional research funding when it comes to some corporations that can get in on a study. And also then it's like academic integrity. And I kind of realized there was a lot more that was going on in the lines of research integrity, how many people are willing to speak about things. And it's to me as a general public, like I never knew anything about any of this. And I realized it's a really weird spider web that is now. I mean, I knew about the history of tobacco, but this is, seems like so many studies now that are either sponsored by Pfizer, where I was like, hang on a second, you're telling me you got no you know, connection or any type of influence into your relationship with any of these people, and they're funding your study about the COVID? It, it didn't make sense to me, but then if you said that, people would be like, oh, that's conspiracy logic. I was like, I feel like some people just want to make sure they keep their job. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's no question that UK has essentially being captured the UK academic establishment. Um, and the influence of uh, funding is very, very considerable. You can't challenge the funders. Um, and then it permeates, so we're becoming more and more bureaucratized uh, and more and more, um, you know, like how many sociologists, or how many Republicans do you have in your sociology department, like to say, where the left has taken over and this is in the UK, I'm not talking about the US. Um, so in effect, we are following many of the trends that are happening in the United States. Um, and it's wearing, when you're working in the system, it's wearing. But well, my own university is, is quite woke. Um, well, I have to watch what I say. Um, so I'm biding my time. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a tire. It's a tiresome thing to have to deal with. Yeah, I just got one last question for you. But I mean, do you remain a sense of optimism when it comes to turning the tides on some of this stuff? 
I mean, I, I remain a bit of a pessimist just because I've looked into history of like the 50s, the 60s and 70s. And I know people say, well, we don't live back then. Well, there's a lot of things that business corporations, agencies were never, government was never held accountable. And we kind of just moved on past it where it's like, I don't know how to get people to really even have the conversation today to really want to talk about some issues and things that we should be addressing. And doesn't, I don't, I'm not talking about everyone needs to go to jail at all. I'm just saying we need to look at where people have knowingly kept lying and address that. And we also need to know about things that we did and turned on each other so quickly. I mean, the media is a stereotypical joke that the media puts out propaganda and it's just a bunch of garbage, but everyone followed suit when they got scared. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm a pessimist myself. Um, I initially thought that a lot of the things that we're seeing developing were quite new. And then as I dug further, I realized that a lot of this goes quite back, goes back quite a bit. So, you know, you start to think of pressure about the Kennedy assassination, for instance, um, and things like this, about the growth of the military-industrial complex in the United States. And then when you look in this country, you see these clubs, um, you know, been around for a long time. Um, and so people have been whispering in each other's ears in the London clubs for a long, long, long time. Just you don't get to become aware of it. Um, so... Um, you know, so I suppose the, the bad news is that it's getting worse, and the good news is it's been like it's been pretty bad for a long time. Um, but we're only becoming really aware of it. Um, I'm just glad nobody can blame my generation. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite. Well, you have your time yet. Um, but the um, what do we do about it? Well, do what you're doing. You know, you 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 bring attention to it. Um, it's good questions and uh, keep the discussion going. What what we're lacking is a proper conversation, even. And you're doing that. Well, thank you very much. From from my perspective, well, I can write papers attacking some of this stuff, exposing it, and then eventually you fall off with good. Well, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show, you know, and let, give me the opportunity to have a conversation with you about this um, and your work and also and also sharing your perspective. That's really important to me. It helps me, you know, understand you as a human, but also be able to sort out my own perspective as balanced as I'm trying to be. Um, but is there a place where people can find your links? If you have any websites, any, if you want to leave it, I can put the email in there as well too, but also links to any papers. I can also link in. I could. I'll send you the links and the and the and the emails. And well, thank you, uh, Robbie. And um, it's been a pleasure to be on your show. I greatly value what you're doing. Uh, wish you the best of luck. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And maybe one uh, day down the road, we'll get Dave on the show, and then we'll do a panel with both you guys, and we can go full in depth on your uh, paper. But thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank, and stay tuned for our next episode.